Judges chapter 10, beginning at verse 6, the story of Jephthah, who has a lot of consonants in his name. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim, and Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you and you cried out for me, to me for help. Did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. But the Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think is best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. When the Ammonites were called to arms and encamped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, whoever will launch the attack against the Ammonites will be the head of all those living in Gilead. Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a group of adventurers gathered around him and followed him. Adventurers, that's, that's an interesting translation. Uh, other translations translate it, a gang of scoundrels or a group of worthless men. So just to, these aren't like adventurers like in Skyrim with swords and shields. These are like, this is like a gang in the mountains. Anyway. 
Sorry, that threw me off a little bit. (laughs) Sometime later, when the Ammonites made war on Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites and you will be our head over all who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king with the question, What do you have against us that you have attacked our country? The king of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messengers, When Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land, from the Arnon to the Jabbok, all the way to the Jordan. Now give it back, peaceably. Jephthah sent back messengers to the Ammonite king, saying, This is what Jephthah says. Not thus saith the Lord, thus saith Jephthah. Israel did not take the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up out of Egypt, Israel went through the desert to the Red Sea and on to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Give us permission to go through your country. But the king of Edom would not listen. They also sent to the king of Moab, and he refused. So Israel stayed at Kadesh. Next, they traveled through the desert, skirted the lands of Edom and Moab, passed along the eastern side of the country of Moab, and camped on the other side of the Arnon. They did not enter the territory of Moab, for Arnon was its border. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who ruled in Heshbon, and said to him, Let us pass through your country to to our own place. Sihon, however, did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. He mustered all his men and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. Then the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his men into Israel's hands, and they defeated them. Israel took over all the land of the Amorites who lived in that country, capturing all of it from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the desert to the Jordan. Now, since the Lord, the God of Israel, has driven out the Amorites, has driven the Amorites out before his people, what right have you to take it over? Will you not take what your God, Chemosh, gives you? Likewise, whatever the Lord our God has given us, we will possess. Are you better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever quarrel with Israel or fight with them? For 300 years, Israel has occupied Heshbon, Aror, the surrounding settlements, and all the towns along the Arnon. Why didn't you retake them during that time? I have not wronged you, 
But you are doing me wrong by waging war against me. Let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. The king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return and triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns, from Aroer to the vicinity of Mineth, as far as Abel Karamim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of tambourines? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh, my daughter, you have made me miserable and wretched because I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends, because I will never marry. You may go, he said. And he let her go for two months. She and the girls went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her what he had vowed. And she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite custom that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. And I think I will end it there. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The story goes on to talk about um, Jephthah's, well, Jephthah goes on to lead his region of Gilead in a, basically a civil war against the tribe of Ephraim um, and ends up killing uh, what's the number? 42,000 of his fellow Israelites. And then Jephthah leads Israel for six years and dies and is buried in Gilead. Whew. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, 
As you have probably noticed as we've been walking through the book of Judges, when we talk about the cycle of Judges, we're talking about a downward cycle. Big time. The pattern that we see of Israel's covenant faith of Israel's covenant faithlessness and foreign oppression, of their crying out to God and God raising up a deliverer, of that judge then leading God's people to victory over their enemies and bringing peace on the land. These stories get worse and worse. Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah, the first judges, unified God's people, led them to glorious victory against their enemies, and brought peace to the land. With Gideon, meek and timid Gideon, things begin to turn. And we see in Gideon's story, conflict with the tribe of Ephraim, the religious shrine he sets up for people to come and worship his ephod, and his attempt to establish a dynasty by setting up his 70 sons as rulers over Israel, a story that ends in tremendous bloodshed and Israel's first civil war. With Jephthah, things take a sharp turn for the worse. The story sets us up to distrust Jephthah. Jephthah is the illegitimate son of a prostitute. He is an exile from Gilead. He lives in the mountains where he leads a gang of scoundrels, as one translation puts it. Jephthah is literally a gangster, a hustler, a mountain man. But when the region of Gilead is threatened by war from the nation of Ammon, they become desperate. And they know that Jephthah not only has skill as a warrior, he also has a small army of skilled fighters up in the mountains of Tob. And so the elders of Gilead go to Jephthah in desperation, and they ask him to be their commander, to lead, to lead them in battle against the Ammonites. And in this little encounter between Jephthah and the elders of Gilead, we get a little bit of a sense of who Jephthah is Jephthah is a skilled negotiator. He is good with words. He is so good with words that he knows how to manipulate events into going his way. And so when the elders of Gilead first come to him, Jephthah distances himself from them by reminding the elders of Gilead of how they once exiled him and drove him from his home. Why should I help you now? He asks. Nevertheless, they reply, we are asking for your help now. And so Jephthah negotiates until he has assurance that he will be made not only commander, but the ruler of Gilead. And this might seem like an admirable characteristic a good quality in a man who will lead God's people. We see Jephthah's skill with words continue in his negotiations with the king of the Ammonites as he recounts the history of God's people and makes a strong political argument defending Israel's occupation of the land around the Arnon. But right away, even this skill in negotiating 
the way that the text sets it up causes distrust for us with the person of Jephthah because Jephthah's behavior is in direct contrast to the Lord's behavior just verses before. Like Jephthah, God has been rejected by his people in this story. Like Jephthah, Israel asks for God's help, and like Jephthah, God initially refuses. That's the first time in the book of Judges that God has refused to save his people. But when God sees the suffering of his people, it is too much for him to bear. God's heart is with those who cry out. But Jephthah's heart, hmm. Jephthah's heart is only for himself. And it's easy for us who have read the whole story of Jephthah to see how Jephthah's trust in his own negotiating skill gets him into trouble. After Jephthah's negotiations with the king of, Arnon, of Ammon break down, we read, the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. And this is the first and only indication in this story that Jephthah is actually chosen by God to lead the people of Israel. And this, is, this should be good news for us in this story. Up until this point, it isn't clear that whether we're supposed to trust Jephthah or be concerned about this mountain gangster leading God's people. Our introduction to Jephthah is concerning, but his eloquent words about the covenant history of God and his people make it seem as though he can be trusted. And now we read that the Spirit of the Lord has come upon him. Sounds good. Which brings us to Jephthah's vow. After the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah. Jephthah musters the armies of Gilead to advance against the Ammonites. And in verse 30, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's. And I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Now there's nothing wrong with making a vow to the Lord. Many pious and righteous, God-fearing people make vows to God in Scripture. But there's something about Jephthah's vow that seems rash, that seems careless. For a man who is careful with his words and skilled at negotiating, this vague language leaves something to be desired. And the Hebrew is even more ambiguous than our English translation because it could be interpreted whatever, like we have in the NIV, or it could be interpreted as whoever, like you see in some other translations, like the New Revised Standard Version. So already for a Hebrew reader, there's a question. Did Jephthah just commit himself to human sacrifice? We'll have to see as the story plays out. But there's something else about Jephthah's vow that is equally troubling. Jephthah has received the spirit of the Lord, which throughout the book of Judges means he's going to win. God is on his side. He cannot lose. And yet, even though Jephthah has received the Spirit of God. 
he still feels the need to negotiate. So Jephthah strikes a bargain with God. He adds a little cherry on top of the Sunday that they've made together. Jephthah tests God with a bargain. Jephthah has God's word, he has God's spirit, he has God's promises, but he still places his trust not in God, but in his own skill as a negotiator. And this is the kicker. You'll notice at the end of his long message to the Ammonite king, Jephthah kind of throws down the gauntlet. He kind of anticipates that the Ammonite king is not going to be swayed by this argument. And so he says, I have not wronged you, but you are doing wrong against me by going to war against me. And so, let God be the judge. Let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. Jephthah calls on God to judge what is right in the conflict between Ammon and Gilead, knowing that God will side with his people. Jephthah receives the Spirit of the Lord, assurance that God is with him and that he will win. And yet, in spite of all these signs of God's favor, Jephthah tries to bribe the judge, which is against the very heart of the law of Moses. In Old Testament law, you don't bribe judges because bribery is an attack on the very heart of justice. Jephthah's rash vow uttered in faithlessness will cost him dearly. In most of the stories of the judges, the battle between the Israelites and their enemies is the climax of the story. It's the most exciting part. But in Jephthah's story, it barely makes two sentences. Jephthah's victory over the Ammonites is so completely overshadowed by the consequences of his rash and selfish and foolish vow. When he comes home, as is the custom in the ancient world, his daughter, his only begotten child, comes to greet her father with tambourines and dancing. And Jephthah remembers the vow that he has made. And he is devastated. Jephthah tears his clothes, a traditional symbol of mourning. He cries, as one does, when faced with the loss of a loved one. But look at his words. Look at his words to his daughter. Oh, my daughter, you have made me miserable and wretched. You have brought me down. You have wounded me.
Jephthah blames his daughter for his pain. Even though his faithlessness will cost her her very life. Jephthah blames his daughter for his pain. And this is where we realize just how bad of a judge Jephthah is. Anyone familiar with the law of God would have known that the law bends over backwards to prevent human sacrifice. A rash vow can be repented of and atoned with a simple sin offering. A human being can be redeemed for a sum of silver. A firstborn child can be atoned for with a sacrifice of a lamb or even a dove. But Jephthah doesn't know the law of God. Jephthah thinks that the God of Israel is like the gods of any other nation. Like Chemosh or Baal or Asherah or Molech. And all of these gods demanded child sacrifice. So why not the God of Israel? Why should the Lord be any different? Jephthah doesn't know the law of God, and so he doesn't know the character of God. He's a man of his word, I guess. And if that requires his daughter's life, well, it's her fault for coming out of the house. Jephthah blames her. His concern is only for himself and his own pain. Jephthah's daughter is not named in this story. And this is very intentional. We're going to start seeing more and more unnamed women as we continue to travel through the book of Judges, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Jephthah's daughter is an anonymous victim of violence and abuse. Because of her father's faithlessness, she is condemned to death. But even in the face of death, her response is one of courage, one of grace. She refers to Jephthah as my father and does not plead for her life. She asks only for a time to mourn. And as a result, she is remembered. The unnamed daughter, the unnamed victim of violence, is remembered by God's people and remembered by God. This theme of the role of women in the book of Judges is going to be really important for us as we move forward. As we reach the conclusion of the book of Judges, the violence is only going to increase, and we're going to end this series with one of the most disturbing, darkest, and saddest stories in all of Scripture. 
There was a story at the beginning of Judges, in Judges chapter 1, that we kind of skipped over, and I'm really regretting that. So I'm going to revisit it here, because it's going to be very important as we move forward. In Judges chapter 1, you guys might remember the story of Othniel. We covered Othniel. He's the first judge. But even before we hear the story of Othniel as a judge, we have the story of Othniel's wife, Aksa, the daughter of Caleb, one of the 12 spies who went into Israel, or who went to scout out the land um, at the end of the book of Joshua, or at the end of the book of uh, Deuteronomy. Caleb gives his daughter Aksa to Othniel in marriage after Othniel wins a great victory in Kiriath Sefer. And there's this beautiful scene after their marriage where Aksa comes to Caleb, her father, riding on a donkey and asks him for a field with a spring of water so that she and her husband can begin their family farm. And Caleb lovingly receives his daughter, Aksa, with open arms. And he gives her a huge piece of property with not one, but two springs of water. That's how the book of Judges begins. Before we even get to any of the stories of the individual judges, we hear a story of a named woman coming to her father, being received in love, and given an inheritance. Deborah, the fiery woman prophet, and Jael, the foreign woman deliverer, demonstrate the high honor in which women were held early in this history of God's people. But as we progress into the book of Judges, as we draw closer to the end, the people of God increasingly deny women these honors, deny women their names, and as we will see, deny women even the very dignity of life. As we walk through the book of Judges, we begin to see that the welfare and status of women is a sign of the religious and political health of the people of God. A society that forgets God, forgets that women are also made in God's image. This story is disturbing. It's not the most disturbing story that we'll read by the end of this series, but it's disturbing, and it's disturbing on purpose. But for those of us who look at this with a Christian lens, there is a glimmer of hope, a glimmer of redemption. Because where is it that we see Christ in this story? When we read this story, what do we see that points us to the Son of God? The faithless mountain man who does not know God's law does not point us to Christ. The elders of Gilead who bargain out of desperation do not point us to Christ. No. We see Christ in the innocent one condemned to die. In the story, in, in the only begotten child who is led like a lamb to 
the slaughter. In the story of the unnamed daughter whose death is the price for the rash words of those in power. We see Christ in the one whose name has been forgotten. This story of the unnamed daughter invites us to reflect on all the unnamed daughters of faithless fathers. This story of the unnamed daughter gives us space in the story of God and his people to mourn the unnamed victims of violence and abuse. Stories of women who show courage and grace in the face of faithless decisions by power-hungry men. Though their names may be forgotten to the world, they are remembered by God. And Christ stands with them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. O oh Lord our God, we come before you humbled. We come before you recognizing that we live in a world where many, many victims of violence are forgotten. And their names are lost. And together with your people in the book of Judges, we mourn this reality. We are sorry for the ways in which we contribute to structures in society that allow this to happen. that allow the vulnerable to be destroyed without anybody even noticing. But we know, oh God, that you remember their names. that you hold them and their stories in the story of you and your people. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and bring peace, bring healing, bring justice, we pray. His name.